If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to look with me this morning. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, so I'm going to read Hebrews 2 and begin in verse 10 and read through the end of the chapter, uh, 10 through 18. And I'm going to leave off all the framework stuff to the book that we have done every week so far just because of time. Uh, but I do want to mention one thing, and that's this. Uh, if, if you're interested in praying for me, I would appreciate it. I have my next round of surveillance uh, a week from Thursday. And so I go back to Duke on the 8th of February and go back through all my, my 90-day cycle. And so if you want to pray for that, I really would appreciate that. Uh, you know that I get nervous leading up to those moments, and I get scared, and I can lose some sleep and wonder what's God going to do. And so if you would pray for me, I would appreciate that. That'll be the 8th of February. And God willing, that next Sunday, I'll give you an update on, on what I find out and uh, how you can further pray slash rejoice. We hope we'll see what God does. So if you would, let's please stand this morning, get you all, get the blood moving a little bit. You've been sitting more than normal. So if you would stand up, this is a biblical posture. Uh, we see this in the Bible that oftentimes God's people stand for the reading of the word uh, to give their t attention to it. So listen to this from Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. This is the word of God. Listen to this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are, be, who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to understand these words, and we've experienced a lot this morning, so help me to trim things down and, uh, and, and get the essence of what this is talking about. Uh, Lord, uh, hold our attention and help us to be astonished at your grace. And Holy Spirit, make Jesus irresistible to us. Help us to see Jesus in this text and understand him more deeply that our lives might praise you, Jesus. That this week as we live our lives, we might think, all I have is Christ. So um, have your way with us, but help us to think about your word today and to be affected with good news. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week I mentioned to you this question from the start. Have you ever felt like something is just off? Can you relate to that? Have you felt like something is off? Have you been in situations where you experientially felt, man, something's off in my job, or something's off in my relationship, or maybe even personally, something's just off in me? Or, or maybe it's, oh, 
I made that decision and I'm, I have, I'm having to live in the consequences of that decision. And that just is off. I hope you've been there. I hope you've been able to think about a time in which you just felt off. What I want to press that further today and ask you this. Have you ever imagined how off things must have felt for Jesus? The guy that created the world and then decided to be born into the world, the one he created. Have you ever thought about the guy that set up the framework of laws that govern everything and he came to live under the framework of those things he created? How about, how about the brokenness and rebellion and sin that absolutely breaks his heart? He came to identify with those things. Can you imagine what it would have felt like for him to know that the world is off? You might experience that in many ways. Imagine what Jesus would have experienced. How much he would have looked at the world and just thought, my goodness, this is way off. And you see, he experienced that knowing that he was coming to be the solution to what is off. So if you want to know what's the point of Hebrews 2 that we've been looking at last week and this week, it's this. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the solution. That's the point. That's the takeaway. That's what you need to go out through these doors with. That's what all of us need into our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, that Jesus is the solution. And last week, we looked at the first part of this, and it was this. He's the king that we don't deserve. That's what we looked at last week in verses 5 through 9. So this week in verses 10 through 18, we're going to continue to think about Jesus as the solution. We're going to add to, he's the king we don't deserve. What we're going to add to that is this. He's the redeemer that we need. And secondly, he is the brother that we've always wanted. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. Jesus is the solution. Last week we thought about him as the king. This week, these two things. He's the redeemer that we need. And he's the brother we've always wanted. Now, as we jump in to think about he's the redeemer that we need, just know, if you're here and exploring Christianity, or you're here and you're thinking about, well, what does it mean for me to grow? How do I grow in my faith? I've been a believer for a long time. How do I grow? If you're here thinking about, I don't know if I like this Christian thing, I'm just, we'll see. Understand this about the message, understand this about Jesus and the message of Christianity. It is based upon need. And if you're here this morning and you don't feel like you need anything, then this talk about the Redeemer and this brother that you might like, uh, it, won't, it, won't, it won't hit. It's just not going to hit. Because the Christian message is not for those that think that they kind of have it together or think they have it all together and he's an add-on. You see, we don't need more information to make better decisions. Uh, we don't need a little bit of help. What we need is redemption. And unless we have this deep sense of need, that actually if you're growing as a follower of Christ, your need gets greater, not less. So when talking about Jesus as the Redeemer we need, just know it's absolutely predicated on and based upon that all of us have need, deep need. 
And it's a deeper need than just more information to make a better decision or I just need a little bit of help to get me over the hump. It's deeper than that. It's that we need redemption. So let's look at this. Jesus is the redeemer we need. This text shows us that in two ways. The first one is this. He identifies with us. Look at verse 14 and verse 17. Again, I'm going to try to go through this quickly. I know you all have been enduring a lot this morning, so bear with me. I'm going to try to trim down as we go. Jesus is the redeemer we need because he identifies with us. Verse 14 and verse 17 say this. He was made like us in every way. Verse 14 says he took on flesh and bones and blood. He's just like you and me. When Jesus came into this world, when God became man and came into this world, he was a real human being. He had an emotional life. He understood hurt. He understood pain. He understood children. Are you listening to this? He lived in a home where mommy and daddy made mistakes. He did. Willingly. It's not easy, kids, is it? Wasn't easy for me to live in my home when my parents made mistakes. I didn't make any mistakes, but they did, you know. (laughs) That's how we feel, isn't it? Jesus knows what it's like to live in a home where parents make mistakes. Jesus knows what it's like to grow up and have to figure out, uh, what am I going to do with my life? I think I know, but I'm growing in understanding what I think I need to do. That's Jesus. He had that too. He even understood the older he got and understood more about what the calling was on his life, the challenges that accompanied that. He understood that too, which meant that he knew what it meant to live out his calling and have to deal with power dynamics. Sound familiar to anybody in the workplace? He knows what it's like to live and work in an environment in which he was misunderstood, in which he was lied about. Has that ever happened to you at work? Or maybe even your own families? He was a real human being. He shared our flesh and blood. He understands. He identifies with us. And not only that, it's not just that he identifies with us by being like we are. It's that he was, look in verse 18, tempted. You know what else it looks like to be a human being living on this side of the garden? To be tempted. And it's really, temptation's a lot different now than it was in the garden. And Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Did you, did you see that? He was tempted like we are. We'll talk about that more in chapter 4. But here it talks about him being tempted so he can help those who are being tempted. Let me tell you briefly. Here's how Jesus was tempted. Here's the first one. You can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. More in Matthew and Luke and John. But here's how Jesus was tempted. Jesus turned this stone into bread. You have power to do that. Here's the temptation. Use your power for yourself. Use your skills for yourself. Use your gifting for yourself. Does that sound like a temptation any of us have ever had to deal with? You ever, have you ever been tempted to use your skills and abilities and talents for yourself? If you're willing to look in the mirror, my hunch is you've had that temptation hundreds of times each week on a low end. Here's temptation number two. Jesus, jump off this temple. Jump off this temple and and fall down the ground because God says that he gives his angels charge over you. So his angels will protect you and your foot won't even be, won't even touch a stone. It won't even crush the ground. You won't even have a, a problem with your foot. 
Here's the temptation. Don't trust anyone. Never fully entrust yourself to anyone. Always test everyone. The Father says this about you. Jesus, put him to the test. Do not entrust your life to him. Put him to the test. You ever face that temptation? You don't want to entrust yourself to anyone? Have you ever, as you look back at your life, have you really opened up to anybody? Ever been vulnerable to anybody? Like truly. I don't mean from the first second you met somebody. I'm saying over time, are you to, a, are you to the place with anyone in your life in which you're actually willing to be honest about what you're thinking and feeling, what you're struggling with, what you enjoy, what you delight in? Just opening yourself up. Or, here's the temptation, is everybody in your life always on probation? You're with them five years, and man, they've been great to you. You've enjoyed spending time with them, and they do one thing wrong, and whoop, don't talk to me anymore. I'm done with you. Jesus knows that temptation, the temptation not to entrust yourself to anyone and to always put people that are close on probation. See, if they're really going to do what I think they should, if they don't, then I always reserve the right to sever it. Because after all, isn't this life supposed to be about me? Doesn't a friendship mean that you always support me? Hmm, I hope you sense my sarcasm there. Temptation number three. Jesus, if you just bow down, I'll give you the kingdoms. Here's the temptation. You've heard me talk about this. We've talked about this for years. All of us want the easy road, everybody. We want a bloodless path to glory. Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Just bow down to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. We want a great marriage, but you know what? We don't want the pain of being vulnerable. We want great relationships, but we don't want the pain of having to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable. We want a great career, career, but not at the cost of having to make sacrifices. We want a wonderful career, and we want it to say something about us. But it doesn't always work out the best, does it? We want bloodless paths to glory everywhere. If I just do these little things and I'll get this result I want and I don't want, I don't want any pain, suffering, hardship. As a matter of fact, I've been taught that if I believe in God, then I won't have to suffer or go through any hardship at all. If that's you, I'm really sorry. That's not the way it was for Jesus. So it won't be that way for you and me. See, Jesus identifies with us. He knows what it's like to be a human being and he knows what it's like to be tempted. And look at what else this passage tells us about him identifying with us. He's, he accomplished the plan. These verses are telling you that he accomplished the plan. Uh, Before time started, uh, the Holy Trinity, the true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they made a plan, team effort, to not only create human beings, as we read about and talked about, Genesis 1, but, but they made a plan to redeem and save. And, and this passage is telling us uh, he accomplished, Jesus accomplished the plan. Look, look at all the data that we got in verses 10 through 18 that tell us that he accomplished the plan. Uh, here's, let's, let's start here. Around verse 17, he made propitiation for his people. 
Now, I know you don't know, perhaps, maybe you don't know what propitiation is, so let's, let's define that word. And let me tell you even further that that's not actually the word. The word is actually expiation. You might not know that either, so let's say that, what that is. When it says that Jesus expiated our sins, this is what it means. He covers it up. Get it? So before God, I got these sins and rebellion that I bring to the table. And Jesus, through his blood, covers my sin and rebellion. Dave's sin and rebellion. And I'm not talking about simply behavior that I do that's improper and wrong and rebellious. I'm talking about my thoughts and all of my motives and desires that are deep down within me. The blood of Jesus covers all of my sin. And it's because Jesus' blood covers my sin that God can forgive. You see, payment has to be made. And Jesus, through his death, puts that payment on top of what needs to be paid so that when God looks down at Dave and he would normally see his rebellion and his actions and his thoughts and in his deeds and his desires, he sees that something covers Dave. And that's the blood of Jesus. So God forgives me based upon Christ covering my sin. And that means that in truth, no more shame. Now I'll tell you, that's not how I live my life. But I'm telling you, that's what's true of my life and can be true of yours if you trusted Jesus. That you can fight back your shame and fight against your guilt by saying, I have been covered Instead of trying to fight your shame and fight your guilt by saying, well, I'll do better next time. That's a horrible way to fight shame and guilt. And if you think about it, it probably hasn't worked too well in your life. It may have been a temporary fix, but it hadn't really got you anywhere. Because you probably still struggle with shame and guilt. So the way to fight your shame and guilt is to practically understand Christ covers me and God sees Jesus as covering who I am and therefore if Christ has covered me and paid for all my sin then before God I am forgiven because of what Jesus did and I don't have to be governed by guilt and shame anymore Jesus accomplished the plan not just by expiating our sin covering it but look at what it says in verse 14 and 15 and following about um, him defeating the devil by defeating death. Did you catch that? By defeating Satan. Jesus defeated death by dying. Real quick. You need to understand. Satan has no legitimate authority over death. Satan has no legitimate authority at all. The, the devil's only authority that he has is because he stole it. He stole it. And he didn't even have the authority to introduce death into the world. You know who did that? God. God's the one who said, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. It was God's concept to introduce as a possibility, not Satan's. What Satan did was to try and steal authority from God. And so when Jesus came, something profound happened. When Jesus came into the world, what he did was assume control and power over death. You say, well, how, what? What does that mean? He said when he was going to die, why he was going to die, and where he was going to die. You get it? Satan did not have that authority. His authority is stolen. 
And what he does is that he loves to excite persecution and to spread lies everywhere throughout the world. That's clear. But death? Oh, no. Friends, when Jesus came, he assumed authority over death and said, I will lay down my life. No one will take it from me. I will lay down my life at a certain time, at a certain place, and for a particular reason. He assumed authority over death. And then when he died, guess what happened? God saw what Jesus did. And when Jesus shed his blood to cover our sin, what happens is, not only does God look at us and see that we are paid for, but what that means is that now there is no condemnation. Can you take that in? So by Jesus assuming the power over death, his blood meant that he covered our sin, which meant that God no longer can condemn what has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And those that no longer are under condemnation, the devil can accuse, but that accusation carries no weight. Do you see? Because what Jesus did covers their sin and God sees that and, there, and pronounces there's no condemnation for that person anymore. So whenever your worst enemy accuses you, God says, there's nothing there to accuse. I see my son in them. And where your great enemy can't accuse you, there's no place in your life in which he can get a foothold. Because God sees you as not guilty, as not condemned. And that means that those that he cannot get a foothold on, it means that they're free. They're free to live out who they are in Jesus. So when this says that Christ accomplished the plan, it's not just saying he covers your sin. It's telling you that he has power over death, and therefore your enemy doesn't have anywhere to get any kind of traction. That even his accusations carry no weight because of what Jesus has done, and God says Jesus has done. Now I hope that encourages you, because it means that God's smile is upon you, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you that are in Jesus. Those are powerful words that God says. I didn't make that up this week in my study. That's what God says. And Jesus accomplished the plan Look just a little bit more with me. Verse 10 tells us that he's the founder of our salvation. That means that he's the captain. He's the author of it. He didn't just die to make you savable. He died to make it happen. He's the author of your salvation. This is telling you that there's someone who went ahead of you as your representative. So he wins you win. You know how we relate this in the modern world? This is how Dave relates this. You know that I love the University of Tennessee. I love watching their sports and cheering for Tennessee. Um, guess what? Yesterday, we won. We beat Vanderbilt yesterday in basketball. It's great. Did you hear the word we? Let me be clear. I contributed nothing to the game yesterday. You do realize that, right? I know you think that I'm a tremendous athlete and I'm amazing and I'm just kidding. I didn't do anything yesterday. But I'm telling you that we won. 
Beloved, in Jesus, his victory is the victory for his people, not because his people have contributed anything. The only thing that we can ever say to contribute is all that sin that he's got to cover up. But if you're thinking about Jesus in your life and trying to live from what he's done for you, then let me tell you, you better say, I won at the cross. And you'd better say, we won when Jesus did everything for you and not, eh, Jesus did most of it, but uh, I'm the one that really sealed the deal to this thing. Beloved, Jesus accomplished the plan. He is the founder of your faith. He's the author of it, the perfecter of it, the originator of it. That's what this is saying. And what that means is that that required a tremendous amount of courage for Jesus to do that, doesn't it? For him to go to the cross to be the author of salvation required an awful amount of courage. Do you know how we get courage in our culture? Self-talk. I can do this. I got to believe it before I can see it. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. My work ethic is enough. I can do it. That's how we, that's how we conjure up courage from self-talk. Maybe a, bit, a little bit of liquid courage too. It's a thing, you know. And what this is saying is that Jesus' courage is way different than anything else. It's more like this. Uh, any of y'all ever been hiking in the woods and accidentally come across uh, a bear? This has happened to me twice. Wasn't looking for a bear. I was just out enjoying the woods and enjoying nature. And lo and behold, I accidentally snuck up on Mama Bear, probably close to the cubs that I didn't know. So I snuck up on Mama Bear, and what do you think Mama Bear did? Turn around, see Dave, raise up. Now, I've never had anyone charge me, thank the Lord. But you know that happens when Mama Bear thinks that her cubs are being threatened, right? Mama Bear doesn't just change her and uh, alter her um, concentration point, but she's ready to take action. Now, let me tell you, Mama Bear is willing to take action to protect her cubs, not because she's thinking in her mind, I'm a bear and this is a human and I'm going to crush them. <laughs> That's not what's going through a bear's mind. Let me tell you what else is not going through a bear's mind. Uh, I'm going to show you where the phrase mama bear comes from. <laughs> Matter of fact, let me tell you, mama bear isn't thinking about herself. She can tell that there's a threat and she is willing to put herself out there at the risk of her life for her cubs. And that pales in comparison to your Savior, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Beloved, Jesus was not thinking about himself when he went to the cross. He was thinking about you and me and his bride, the church. He was so overwhelmed with a passion to glorify his Father and accomplishing this mission that he was willing out of love to not risk his life but to lay it down. 
That is an unbelievable love. And it accomplishes redemption. And here's the other thing the text tells us about this accomplishment. Again, very quickly, look at verse 10. He brings many sons to glory. See that in verse 10? Our Jesus accomplishes something, and he brings many sons to glory. This should reorient how you read that passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus being crucified between two thieves. You remember that one? You remember they both started off kind of making fun of Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus said to one of those thieves? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you, can you, do you see how powerful that is? The moment of his greatest agony, being forsaken by his father, enduring unbelievable justice, to an innocent man. He knew he was innocent. In that moment, he could look at the guy beside him and say, today, I will bring you to paradise. It's just gonna be a little bit later in the day. Jesus accomplishes the plan. It started that day when he told that man on the cross, I'm gonna take you to glory. He knew that his suffering, in the moment he was suffering, he knew that it was to bring that man and countless others to glory. Well, Jesus is the solution. He identifies with us, and here's the second thing. Uh, sorry, uh, Jesus is the solution. Sorry, I already messed up on this. He's the redeemer that we need. And this is the second thing, and it'll be real quick, real quick. He's the brother we've always wanted. I bet some of you had brothers or sisters, siblings that were the favorite, or maybe you were, and you've had to deal with that. It's tough. I bet that you've had siblings who, uh, as time has gone on, they haven't been as helpful maybe in uh, trying to care for your family as they should. Just disconnected, not interested, just not there. Well, I want to tell you that this tells you that this brother, Jesus, is not ashamed of you. This is the brother you've always wanted. This is the sibling you've always wanted. He is not ashamed of you. As a matter of fact, he's the one that'll take you all the way through your life. And he'll walk down every hallway and open up every door with you. So to walk down the hallway of pain, he'll be right there with you. To open up the door to sorrow and grief, he's been there. To open up the door to suffering and hardship, he can open up that door too and hold your hand and hold my hand and walk us through that doorway and walk us down the hall. If it's unbelievable glory and celebration that you get to experience, he, he's right there with you too. He's the brother you've always wanted. He's the one that walks with you through every single thing that you can experience in your life. And ultimately, you know what he does? He brings you to your destiny. And if you think back, do you remember what your destiny is in the first part of chapter two? To rule with him forever and ever. That's your destiny. To be made a little lower than the angels and with Jesus to rule over all creation. Beloved, that's your destiny. And that's what brings us to the table.